Let's talk about justice. When you hear that word, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? What are the issues that come to mind? Maybe for some of you, you think your mind instantly goes to political conflict. You think of presidential elections and protest, issues involving race, issues involving mandates, and your blood pressure goes up. Anybody there? I think we're in a time that we're going to be in for a little bit. I think that's just the reality. Others of you, when you hear the word justice, you may think of more of the issues that Whitney talked about, of just practically caring for the vulnerable. Justice touches a lot of different things. And I think what's really important for us today is that we provide a solid foundation for what we really believe as followers of Jesus about justice. So that's what we're about. Three questions that we're going to deal with today. What is justice? Why does justice matter? And then how do we do justice? Part of what we want to do in this four-week series is give you an opportunity to ask questions. So week four, we're going to do some Q&A. So I would invite you, and I think at some point in the message you'll have a, a text number. You can text your questions and we'll remind you of that. But the first three weeks we want to lay a foundation. We want to help you understand what the Bible has to say about justice. But we do want to give you an opportunity to ask some specific questions that you, may have, you might have. All right, so I, we, we take that seriously. We take that seriously because we want to have a, um, an environment where we can deal with real stuff and hard stuff from a biblical point of view. And my guess is everybody in this room doesn't agree on everything. And that's okay. But we want to make sure that we are focused on what matters most and what is, what is essential. So one of the things that I feel like the Lord has put on my heart, even as I prayed and processed of, of this time, you know, how do, how do we engage? How do we cut through the clutter? How do we cl- cut through the, the clutter of uh, politics and polarization and in some ways paralysis as, as a church? And where does the church sit in the middle of all this? It was interesting, I had a, a conversation with... Uh, you know, a couple conversations with some 20-somethings who are doing all that they can to follow Jesus. And one of them said this to me. He said, you know, as I was thinking back on the pandemic, and I'm, he said, I was reflecting on friends who have, you know, left church or disconnected and all that. He, he said this. He said, you know, the pandemic and all the issues around it gave the church a layup. Gave the church a layup. And instead of taking that layup, we've taken a knife to that basketball. I thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty scathing critique. And that's one perspective. Whether you agree with it or not, that's the perspective, I think, of many in our culture right now. That somehow the, the church hasn't maybe been the church. Reminded of Martin Luther King, you know, 60 years ago in a letter from Birmingham jail, and he talked about, you know, the, the early church 
the Church of Acts and all that was the, uh, was the thermostat. When you change the thermostat, the culture changes. He said the modern church is more like a thermometer. We just record. We just record. So that's an interesting challenge. So as I've been praying through this, I'm like, okay, what can we do as a church? How can we get ourselves grounded? How can we have a biblical foundation in what, um, in what matters most? So I think there's a, a few things I want to get out on the table for us to think about in our, our culture and the way our culture thinks, and then we'll dive into Scripture. We'll dive into Scripture. It's interesting when you think about uh, ways we think in our culture. I think there is a, a, a cultural understanding of things and a biblical understanding of things. Tim Keller, who has pastored a church in Manhattan for years, I think one of the leading thinkers in you know, how we really reach out to the next generation, he says uh, in his publication, How to Reach the West Again, he identifies several what he calls cultural narratives. These are the things that it's just kind of out there and people believe, maybe with or without some basis. Let me give you a few, see if you can complete these sentences. Our culture says you have to be true to yourself. That's one. Our culture says you should be free to live as you choose as long as... We're not real strong on that one. As long as you don't hurt anybody, right? Isn't that one of the ideas out there? Everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Raise your hand if you've ever heard these ideas expressed in our culture. They seem to be just out there. But where do they come from? And are they, are they, are they biblical? Or are they just something in our culture? And when we get into justice, there's a, there's a lot of things that we can talk about. Uh, Harvard Law professor Michael Sandel says, uh, really, in, the, in the, the, the arena of justice, we tend to think of it in three different ways. Not necessarily a believer, but he outlines three different ways of thinking about it. And to illustrate it, he, he tells, uh, goes back in history to 1884, and there's a, an English ship that has wrecked, and there's these four sailors on a lifeboat. One of the sailors is a young orphan, and he's very sick. And the four sailors are out there uh, for lots of days, and they eat some turtles and survive for a minute, but then they decide they're going to die. So what do they do? They take a penknife and they kill the young sailor. And you know what they had to do to survive. They go to, they go to trial, and they're, they're on trial for murder. Imagine being on that jury. So three competing ways to look at that. One is maximizing welfare, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. According to that standard, yeah, three livings better than all four, dying. Another one, respecting freedom for the individual to live as he or she chooses. That might be a problem for the young sailor. And then finally, promoting virtue. People ought to act in accord with morality and virtue. Is it wrong just because it's wrong? Now, Sandel, again, not a follower of Jesus, but he says all the ways we think about justice in culture 
He says we're limited without a transcendent reality. Even he acknowledges that. He says there's something missing in all the ways we think about justice. So we want to fill that in. This morning we want to provide a biblical foundation for this. And I'm going to give you several scriptures, but before we do that, I want you to take a look at this video that gives us the big picture of the Bible and justice. This is from the Bible Projects. Let's check this out. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? 
Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What a beautiful picture of justice. I want you to grasp the big story, the big story of God's justice. Genesis to Revelation. One of the things I would invite you to challenge yourself on is do you have a theology of justice? Do you have a way of understanding through the scriptures that provides a foundation for you? Now, I want to run through some scriptures. Some of those will refer back to the video, and, and there's some others I just think are really important for us to grasp. If I read every scripture that had to do with justice, there's some game on later today we might miss. I want to point to a few. Psalm 89, verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalmist is talking about God, love and faithfulness go before you. Now, I want to give you these Hebrew words again. Now, I don't profess to be a Hebrew scholar. I'm not trying to do some language flex or something like that. But here's what I, here's what I think the languages matter for a second. 
We live in a time when words mean all kinds of things. People fill them in with their own meanings and all that. And I think as followers of Jesus, it's important that we try to get back. What did the original languages say? What what do they mean? How do we understand that in the Bible? So this word righteousness, tzedakah, it's an ethical standard of right relationship. It is doing right by someone. Justice, it's mishpat. Actions that you take to live out that standard of rightness. And there's one of my favorite words in the Bible, hesed. It's the loving kindness of God. Sedekah, mishpat, and hesed. Embedded in the very nature, the very character of God. Now, all these are predicated on the truth that we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God. I'll take the time and read the passage. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then David in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We are created in the image of God. When you think about from our earliest days in the womb... Until those last days, we bear the image of God. And the people that we see bear the image of God. Let that simple idea sink in for a minute. Now, I want to give you a few more passages. Deuteronomy 10. This is the law. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. Why? For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Theologians call this the quartet. I wasn't a singer, but I think that means four. The quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. So you'll see this run through Scripture. That God has a special care and concern for the quartet of the the vulnerable. Let me take you to the prophets for a minute. Go to Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, hesed, justice, mishpat, and righteousness, tzedakah, on earth, for in these I delight declares the Lord. This is the very character of God. 
I want us to connect our definition, our what is justice, why does it matter. These are not abstract ethereal concepts. They are rooted in the very nature of who God is. Amen? Let's make that connection this morning. I want to take you to one more. Isaiah 58. Now, the, Isaiah is, uh, <clears throat> as prophets do, one of the things that was so powerful to me in that video was the red and the white ribbons. And the prophets would come in and, and critique the people for their lack of justice. And, and in particular, Isaiah in this passage is responding to the people who are frustrated because they've prayed, they feel like they've followed God, they've even fasted. They've gone through all the religious things we do. But this is what the prophet says, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is the word of the Lord. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Old Testament scholar Richard Waldke says this about justice and righteousness. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. It's the red and the white ribbon right there. Now, the Old Testament. Don't you love the Old Testament? I love the stories. I, I love that, that God intervened in a messed up people. The Old Testament's rough. There's a lot of very difficult, challenging things, but we see God working with his people, through his people, in spite of his people. But my favorite thing about the Old Testament, it points to Jesus. And it points to the New Testament. And I want to I want to pivot for a moment and give us a little bit, a window into the way Jesus embodies justice. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the Bible, please hear this. Start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Everything in the old points to Jesus. Everything in the new is about Jesus. Start with Jesus. Make that your starting point. Now, I want to take you to Luke chapter 14, and let me set this, uh, this story up. Jesus is going to tell some parables, but he is, he's at the home of a prominent Pharisee. The Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day, good church-going folk who did all the right things. Jesus is there. He's healed on the Sabbath, which breaks one of their laws in his mind, and um, the Pharisees are frustrated with him. And as is often the case, whenever there's an encounter with Jesus, we learned this in our series, there's a conversation that will happen. Jesus will see through 
the exterior and cut right to the heart. Whenever we have an encounter with Jesus, we have the conversation we need to have, maybe not the one we want to have. This is what Jesus says, or this is what uh, the gospel writer of Luke says, uh, verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. When he noticed how the guest picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Jesus right here is, at one level, seems to be some practical advice about how not to get embarrassed at a party. But it will go deeper than that. There is a pattern of humility in a conviction of pride that Jesus will attack. There is a culture. I mean, can you picture these? You know, it, what, what you had at the time, you had like couches and seats here, and it would be either like a U or a V, and the, the host would sit here, and they're jockeying for position, for status. They were building their brand before that was even cool. And Jesus will have a different way. And then he continues. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what is Jesus saying here? There is a different way. The white scarf is different than the red scarf. He turns the whole system upside down and says, why, why would you invite the poor? They, they can't repay you. The way of the world would say that is a waste of time because I have no benefit from inviting you to the party. Jesus says, no, 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 no. There's a different way. There's a different standard. There's a different heart. There's a different kingdom. Now let me take you to two other places. Followers of Jesus. That last parable is a doozy. You can read that on your own. But I'm going to skip to this. I want to go to 1 John 3, verse 16. This is John. This is old John. John in the inner circle, follower of Jesus. He's going to give us a concrete definition of the old concept, of the Old Testament concept of hesed that is now agape. 
love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, do not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Do I need to even explain that? If there's not an outward expression of the love, the grace, the mercy that we have received, is the love of God in us? I don't think we ought to brush that off lightly. I'm sorry if you came here for a feel-good passage. That's not it. James, younger brother of Jesus, the one who didn't buy it until the resurrection, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. Now, don't get caught up in works righteousness and all that stuff. Our works are a response to what God has done for us. The love we show to others doesn't start with our motivation to do good. It starts with what God has done for us. So what is justice and why does it matter? The what and the why are tied up concretely in the who. The who that went to the cross on our behalf. The who that became poor. The who that became distanced. The who that was rejected. That is the embodiment of love and justice and righteousness. Amen? Now, I want to at least point you in some how-tos. Let's do that this morning. Let me give you some how-tos. We've got a foundation. I've got five starting points for the how. They're on the app. You can get the notes. It's all there. Just listen for a minute. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear information, I like to write it all down, and sometimes that's good, but sometimes it just gets in the way of my heart. Maybe that's just me. Starting point for the how. First, number one, think from the inside out, not the outside in. Think from the inside out, not the outside in. What do I mean by that? We start with Jesus. We start with the very idea that justice, mercy, and love are found in the very character of God. And the very heart of God is aligned with the most vulnerable. 
the very heart of God is for, is aligned with the most vulnerable. So when we look at all the issues that are there, I could, I could list all kinds of hot-button topics and political controversies, politicians by name, terms by name. We could do all that, and we'll answer questions if we want to. We've got some boundaries there. We've got to be careful. But at the same time, we want the gospel, we want to the, the, the truth of who God is to be so clear at the very center, at the very core, that that is clear in all the, the noise from the outside, we see through the lens, through the view of who God is. So we always start there. We never start from the outside in. Okay, number two. Widen your table instead of insulating and isolating. I got to confess, I absolutely love my family. (laughs) I love spending time with my family. And as I preach this, I'm telling you, I, I talked about being over my skis. I'm convicted I love my family so much and want to spend time with them so much, I think I've got some work to do if I'm going to live out the real justice and mercy that God talks about. I like my people. I like my circle. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to get out. But Jesus opened up the table. He invited the most vulnerable in. I believe you and I ought to do that as well. Number three, get closer to the problem instead of running away out of fear or pride. Get closer to the problem instead of running away out of fear or pride. I've gotten involved in things. I've I've done some mentoring. I've done some counseling. And it hasn't always ended up the way I thought it was going to. And sometimes I get gun-shy about getting back in. I ought not do that. Because what's underneath that is some ugly pride. It says, hey, I wasn't a hero. It didn't work out for me the way I thought it might. God calls us to engage, and he'll take care of the results. Number four. Spend more time building relationships with real people than admiring or criticizing people you've never met or building your brand. Just think about that one for a minute. I think, I think we're in a time right now where we, we want to we watch a lot of stuff and we want to read a lot of stuff, and that can be great, but are we actually doing things are we actually doing things i got friends that don't just talk about it they're actually like foster parents and engaging and rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in that and then five do something that shows up on your bank statement and your calendar do something that shows up on your bank statement and your calendar something that's tangible I believe that's what God is calling each one of us to do. And we'll let the Spirit guide you in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's clear. 
We thank you for its challenge. Oh, at the same time, Jesus, we're thankful for your grace. So we can respond not out of guilt and shame, but even as we may be convicted, we know that we can love because you first loved us. Show us how to do that, Holy Spirit. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.